This is Fuel. Fuel for thought. Fuel injected. Fuel for your business. Jet fuel. Hiring somebody on a big fat salary to solve all of your new business woes. Um, it rarely works. And I think agencies often fall into that trap of thinking, okay, we're going to spend a shed load of money on a senior new business person and they're going to kind of create a department of one and they're going to nail it. There's a big difference between someone coming in and getting the strategic building blocks in place, getting the, deciding which plates to spin and getting them spinning. That shouldn't take very long. Um, and then what's that person going to do? Because if you think that they're going to spend their time sort of, you know, getting down in the weeds and doing the lead gen, they might say that they will, but that's a tough thing for that person to go ahead and do. Don't even think about growing your agency until you've listened to this show. Coming up, we've got an interview with Robin Bond, a well-known marketing industry commentator for Centaur's Marketing Week and also owner of his own mentoring and coaching consultancy, Co-Definery. As an agency CEO, when to recognise that you need to bring in expert help, what signs and symptoms tell you that you're ready for growth, how, when and why you should delegate, and how to find the mojo that inspired you when you first started your agency, how to rekindle that fire, and lots, lots more on the Fuel Podcast, The New Business Show. Hello, I'm your host, a Smith called Keith. If you're curious about how to take your agency from good to great and grow turnover and profits without losing all the wonderful stuff that made you get out of bed every morning, then this is the show for you. Coming up, we've got a great interview with Robin Bond and he's going to reveal his secrets to beat the awkward, gangling, clumsy teen years of agency growth to achieve pure agency gracefulness and elegance. Talking of elegance, in new business, is there any greater compliment to be given than when a prospect says, your timing's perfect? Timing and relevance are two of the most important attributes of any new business campaign. And in a time when you need to have your finger on the pulse of multiple channels, there's no better way to do it than with The Advertist, the platform that serious new business people choose every time. Give your new business drive the best chance of success by staying on top of all the latest people moves, news, insight, tenders, mergers, acquisitions, spin-outs, MBOs, MBIs and startups every day. The Advertist brings you critical account winning data matched with fintech company Predictive Black's AI-driven financial health monitor to give you a live readout of the outlook, revenue, costs and cash of 24 different sectors. The Advertist is used by the experts in new business because it delivers results time and time again, getting your agency to the front of the queue every day. Read the news before it reaches the marketing media and make that all-important first impression. Give the team a call on 0203 356 3717 if you're in the UK or just email hello at theadvertist.com for a free no-obligation trial. Okay, so while we're waiting for the coffee to brew, let's spend a few minutes in the rye company of Jeremy Davis, who this time is musing on the perception of agency receptions. I've been thinking a lot about culture recently. 
partly because I've been working with a client who sells into HR departments, and partly because I've been listening to BBC Radio 3, but mostly because my social media feeds have been full of agency principals protesting that their unique and creative agency cultures can't possibly be maintained if their teams aren't in the studio all the time. Now, in the world of new business, the only thing we know about culture is that it eats strategy for breakfast, as Peter Drucker once said. But apparently we are living through the era of the Great Resignation, after two years of hashtag WFH, which have given people a chance to reflect on what they really want in life. And it turns out not to include spending two hours a day trying not to sniff someone's armpit on an overcrowded commuter service. But with more people returning to the workplace and bosses going great guns to attract employees and clients back in, it's handy for new business people to get to grips with the culture they're working in. And just as marketers will tell you that you can tell a lot about a person by the contents of their shopping trolley, so you can tell a great deal about the culture of an agency by what it has in reception. When I started out in new business at the turn of the century, a fish tank was the ultimate status symbol for a creative agency, with the exoticism of the fish a useful guide as to just how achingly cool and creative the agency regarded themselves. For all that one of the best-known ads of this period informed us that we'd be surprised what we could do with a goldfish, the one thing you couldn't do with one was let it anywhere near a marketing agency's reception area unless you wanted to convey the impression that the extent of your creative powers might be a full-page ad in the local paper. Never having kept fish myself, I always wondered who was responsible for cleaning out the tank, because the water was always crystal clear, and I very much doubt the same people who insisted on having the fish tank were mucking it out every morning. I once explained my job to a new client by drawing an analogy with a fish tank I'd spotted at the train station that morning, in which a solitary fish was engaged in a Sisyphean quest to get to the end of the stream of air bubbles emanating from the filter at the bottom of the tank. Every time he struggled to the end, he was propelled back to where it had begun and had to start all over again. I likened this to the thankless task of the cold caller, who could never enjoy fully the fruits of his or her labour, as the clever types higher up in the agency swoop in and grab the glory when it comes to actually meeting prospects in person, while the cold caller goes right back to square one. In fact, the fish analogy still holds water, if you'll pardon the pun, even though cold callers have dwindled like hammerhead sharks and freshwater stingrays to the point where they face the threat of extinction. There are still plenty of new business fish in the sea, but just like the real sea is full of plastic and raw sewage, so new business people have to contend with a tide of content, much of it toxic to their ambition of actually having a conversation with the decision maker. As the noughties wore on, agency reception areas changed significantly as cultures became, at least on the face of it, less hierarchical and more collaborative. The furnishing has got more comfortable, and with the decline of magazines, coffee tables began to be adorned with the sorts of books that no one in the agency actually ever reads, but make the CEO look clever, rather than folders of press cuttings. These days, if the agency has press cuttings in reception, it's a sure sign that they don't get a lot of PR, and so you can draw your own conclusions about their commitment to a culture that supports sales and marketing. The other thing you won't see many of in reception areas these days is awards. This is because clients think they're largely a waste of time and money, and an exercise in vanity and self-congratulation. Until one of their projects actually wins one, of course.
So, after a gentle easing into the year with some great groundwork about ways to find new business using AI and re-litigating the socio-economic debate about the creative industries, I wanted to return to the original mission of the podcast and get into a bit of New Year new business stuff if it's not too late. Well, I mean, there's never really a bad time to look at new business because if it was on your list of New Year New Year's resolutions, either organic, referral or cold new business, it's almost guaranteed that you've already lost the original focus because you've been pulled in various directions or if you're a senior board director, you've probably been influenced by the push and pull of external pressures. But fear not, because my guest this week helps senior agency leaders rediscover their new business mojo. Two months ago, we did a show stateside with Brad Farris talking about a similar problem that American agencies have. So I wanted to speak to a UK expert to see if the problem is more global in nature. I recently read an interesting piece about agency differentiation and how the mainstream agency communities become homogenized into a, a kind of one flavor fits all 50 shades of magnolia choice for clients. And this leaves only the agencies that sit on the outer fringes with any kind of discernible points of difference, which is not good if you're in the business of finding new clients for your agency. My guest for this show is Robin Bond. He's well known in the agency world because not only is he a regular columnist for Marketing Week, but through his business, Codefinery, he helps agencies create their own bespoke growth model, helping them deliver value to the right audience at the right time. Something that's become critical to agencies that need to target new channels. Robin is co-chair of the Future Growth Council at British Interactive Media Association, or BIMA, and he's also a man ambassador for Who's Your Mama London, a mentoring program for She Says, helping women maintain careers and rise to the top, something else that's also vital for today's workforce. Codefinery is a mixture of consulting, coaching, mentoring for agency chief execs, but a lot of what Robin prescribes translates to the more general new business development role because, as we found out over the last two years, if you're going to make an agency a success, one of the critical skills you need to learn is how to grow the business. Robin's been the agency new business guy and he's been in other key positions in the business, but he's an advocate of keeping the new business pipeline healthy and full as part of a holistic view across all aspects of agency good practice, including HR, strategy and insights. How your agency responds to a crisis very much relies on how you've prepared the business and whether you've set yourself up for failure or success. So let's get into it for this show, Unlocking Your Growth Mojo, and welcome aboard Robin Bond. Welcome, Robin. Thank you so much, Keith. What a, uh, a delightful introduction. Um, <laughs> if I can live up to half of that, then we should be in for a good show. Great stuff. Well, it's good to hear. Are you keeping well? I'm very well, yes. Very well, thank you. Um, so far, managed to dodge the, the dreaded lurgy. Good for um, you. But, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm feeling pretty decent. It's a busy week, but um, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. Good stuff. Well, I mean, just to, to kick off and, and uh, to get things rolling, I mean, what, what brought you into the world of agency growth? What attracted you? <laughs> That's really, it's a difficult place to start because I'd love to tell you that there was some grand strategy that, um, you know, brought me into a place where I thought I could add most value or whatever. Um, but I suspect like most people, um, you know, there was a, a degree of wigging it. You know, I, I fell out of university with a degree that was useless in, uh, in biology and oh. fell into uh, a sales role with a technology company. And after a couple of years of that, 
um, found myself in agencies and was always in those growth roles. And obviously, as you move up the career ladder, um, you end up sort of taking a more strategic view on that stuff. So um, I suppose I started with new business, um, broadened out, you know, as I became a sort of board level person. And then in 2016, launched what is a management consultancy in the shape of co-definery. So, um, you know, ultimately, all of that is about growing the business. And of course, having come from new business and marketing and, you know, the, the sort of the commercial sharp end of the agency, um, I always enjoyed having my fingers in, you know, all parts of the pie right. uh, across the agency business. And I suppose I've never left, you know, never left that enjoyment and that sensibility. So it's, um, it's a lovely privileged position to be in to work with agency leaders, um, you know, of indies and, and network agencies to um, help them do all of the things they need to do across the business, um, which are going to help grow the company in the, way, in the way they want to grow it. But obviously, a big part of that often is new business. So um, I sort of fell into it and never left. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the things that we'll, we'll talk about later on, you know, as well is the, you know, how important it is if you've come up through agency, through sort of the new business role, what a vital thing that is now, you know, in terms of uh, it, its import to the uh, the whole agency. So, I mean, we'll, we'll come on to that in uh, in a few minutes. But I mean, I mean, we we had, uh, as I said in the uh, the intro, we had a guy called Brad Farris on the show a few weeks ago um, on the from the US side of things. And he was explaining that, you know, one of the biggest reasons for an agency that not to grow is is when it starts to to nudge that kind of one million well, dollar as he was saying but obviously the same over here in the uk but pound threshold and you know that the, basically the role of a ceo changes you know at that point so i was just wondering could you just outline for us you know what are those changes that happens when a leader moves from working kind of in the business as i know you say it's a cliche but working in the business to working on the business and in agency terms what i mean what specifically does that mean Oh, it's such a such a rich area because again, it's a cliche for a reason. You know, you hear this sentiment all the time, um, right. particularly with independent agency leaders. You know, founders. Um, I think what happens to those leaders personally, I, when they're able to to sort of, you know, devolve themselves from the intricacies of the running of the day to day client business. Um, the first thing that happens is their stress levels go down. <laughs> Uh, and that's, you know, that's <laughs> not to be sniffed at. Um, I also think their levels of personal fulfillment tend to go up. Um, you know, there are certain founders, and of course all founders are, are, are different, but certain founders kind of, they just like doing the work and they tend not to be massively ambitious. They just like making good stuff and feeling proud of the work. Um, but those uh, that perhaps have more of uh, a kind of commercial drive within them, kind of willing to do new things and to kind of find the right kind of sustainable growth for them. Um, yeah, when their stress levels go down and their levels of personal fulfillment are kind of um, uh, fueled, if you like, um, they have more impact. And I think, you know, just simply live, sort of lifting your head above the parapet as that senior leader and having the time and space to consider where the company's heading and, and start to make the important decisions that ultimately you're paid to make, um, then it's a more fulfilling job to have. You're less kind of in the, the vortex getting pulled from pillar to post and, right. and um, you know, dragged around by client demand. And, and you're more in a place of leadership where you can inspire the people around you and, and sort of express, you know, your aspirations and, and the value of your experience. And that for me feels, you know, like a, a good day at the office. And, and that's why a lot of that comes out in the coaching work that I do. You talk to leaders who are sort 
of stuck in the doing and they want to be more in the thinking um, there's a real desire to do that and of course when they're able to do it it, it doesn't make a big difference for them so so that's certainly I think from a personal point of view um, uh, I suppose by implication you know the impact on the business is is very complementary if the leader is a bit of a human log jam and all decisions have to go through that appointed person at the top of the uh, you know of the hierarchy things get slowed down um, the next level of leadership isn't developed you know people suffer from a lack of confidence because there's always someone that, that can kind of tell you know can do it better they're not empowered to make decisions and so on but I think um, just fundamentally if the leader is working more strategically the business as a whole is likely to have more direction right. we could get into the ins and outs of that but uh, uh, an agency that has more strategic clarity um, and a more conviction around that sense of direction in my view will get where it wants to go faster and it will do better work and it will make more money while it's doing it yeah i think it's very important i mean you know the, the point you just made about you know being able to just lift your head up and and to be able to just kind of look more to the horizon and stuff i think that you know the workforce themselves feel you know feel happier knowing that that their leader is has basically got an eye on the the, the longer horizon you know the sort of five five year growth um sort of plan rather than what's going to happen tomorrow i think that uh, you know sort of being able to look forward is um is, is always a good thing but i mean what what have you found has been like the single biggest factor that that tends to sort of hold back agencies what i mean what's the, the biggest inhibitor for you it's funny just hearing you sort of process that that last thought was it reminded me of the worst boss i ever had so he was um shockingly incompetent and um, the issue i think that was really at the, uh, at the heart of it is kind of the answer to your question so if if the the upside here of a leader having the time and the kind of desire to think strategically about direction then the the absence of that is where the problems arise so a leader that is um sort of fundamentally unable to stick to a course of action um just breeds nervousness in the business no one knows where the ship's going to be heading on any given day so um yeah the biggest single factor that inhibits go growth is a lack of focus in my view right it's um you know you can be as you can work with an agency and create a fantastic strategy that has a brilliantly differentiating value proposition um and if they don't stick to that focus then it's just a bunch of words on a virtual whiteboard in the cloud somewhere it doesn't mean anything so that ability to focus um which is you know easier said than done to be fair you know if you're sort of charging an agency with being more progressive and thinking about stand out in a more modern way and getting away from some of the sacred cows of you know that people have believed around agency growth which are just outdated i'm sure we'll come on to those getting past that stuff is hard you know people have a real kind of fear of i mean specialization is a good case in point that's a great example of that lack of focus you say specialized to agencies and they will often hear oh that just means working in a single sector or they'll hear oh that just means you know we can only work on a single discipline right you know we can't be cross this disciplinary in our approach and neither of those things are true but um you know the, like the word niche has a similar effect it sounds small people think of niche as sector focus and of course it can mean a million different things so yeah i think focus is is the biggest single thing in all of its sort of nuanced uh, glory that is 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 going to help agencies find their definition of growth and I, I think one of the the interesting points about all that is that you know in our in our industry in the creative industry I mean ninety nine point nine percent of them have been built as a you know a creative agency first 
you know, and not a a business. So, you know, the business has been built around the creative. Um, And, you know, those agencies, they tend to focus first on great ideas and then worry about the business afterwards. But obviously now we're in a different business climate. You know, things have changed considerably now with, you know, sort of investment strategies and, and, and sort of money coming into the business and the types of, you know, owners of these businesses. I mean, how how do you help CEOs strike a balance between obviously the conformity of running a business, but at the same time still being cutting edge and still being on, you know, sort of sort of pushing the boundaries and things like that? I mean, is there that must be quite a difficult process for you? Well, I suppose it it, it is and it isn't in as much as I suppose to answer it in a slightly oblique way, I realised quite early on in the life of Codefinery that it was very much a good to great proposition. It was not a consultancy that was going to sort of turn around failing agencies because failing agencies are um, failing for a reason. Whereas those other agencies that are in a good place and want to be in a great place, by definition, they're more open-minded and they're kind of ready to, you know, do things differently. They're ready to be progressive. Um, And, um, you know, they're going to bring with them some commercial acumen. So I think where there isn't a fit, you know, it will be probably pretty evident to both parties and I'll, you know, Codefinery is, uh, you know, a business that's very clear on where a fit lies and (laughs) and where there isn't a fit. And I'm sure that's equally apparent on the other side of the table. But um, I think the the balance between being commercial and sort of doing good work, whether it's creative work or, you know, developing apps or, you know, whatever else it's going to be, that's either an inherent part of a healthy business or, you know, the business is going to find it very difficult to sort of thrive in what is a very commercial world. I mean, just one small example of that is, you know, just in terms of having to sell stuff to clients, many of whom, you know, employ teams of professional buyers in the shape of procurement. A smart, commercially savvy agency will um, make sure that the people that come into contact with procurement are mindful of what that job entails. They'll be respectful of the kind of um, targets and drivers that different procurement people are, um, you know, working towards the different motivators, and they will bring just as much strength in negotiation and just as much confidence and conviction in, I don't know, different pricing models as, um, you know, as that procurement professional. And then it becomes a meeting of peers, which is something I would advocate for right across the agency business model. So if you're not being treated as a peer by your by your clients, then, you know, something's wrong. So I don't think any of that stuff happens without real strong commercial acumen running through the veins of the business. That's not an appalling mixing of uh, (laughs) metaphors, but, uh, you know, you've got to be good at what you do and you've got to be good at running a business. And I think if you're not open to doing both things, both of those things well, then it's always going to be an uphill battle to grow. Uh, I mean, the the thing for me was that Obviously, you know, in the agency world, there is, you know, there there is an, you know, a big input from from the financial sector. You know, there's there's people looking to to invest money into agencies, into agency networks, and stuff like that. I mean, presumably, you're you're kind of involved in parts of that process. Sometimes, you know, an agency owner will come to you and say, "Look, Rob, you know, I'm interested in, you know, a five year exit strategy or something else like this afterwards." But, I mean. 
under those circumstances, I mean, do you think that that kind of you know the demands of a of a of an investor, you know, ten? I mean, can they ever get in the way of the creative, or or do you think the investor? It's a different type of investor. That's really what it, what it demands, isn't it? Well, if I'm understanding the question uh, right, I think whenever there is investment in an agency, obviously things change quite dramatically. Um, sometimes explicitly so if, yeah. let's say, an agency is acquired and folded in or if there's a significant rebranding that goes on to bring it under, you know, into line with the, the acquirer's brand. Um, or even if it's just an investor, you know, an institutional investor sitting in the background that they're pumping some money in and sitting on the board and, and you know, they're going to, anyone involved that's putting their hand in their pocket is going to want to see a return on their investment. So I think, you know, the the, the, the demands of those black, uh, backers, if you want to put it in that sense, it, it shouldn't really get in the way of, of the output of the agency or indeed the new business process because at that point everybody wants the same thing right the question i suppose is how well designed that deal has been you know how well managed everybody's expectations are um which you would expect there to be you know proper intelligent due diligence on both parties although we've all heard horror stories about where acquisitions have gone horribly wrong but generally speaking i think those those deals seem to go pretty well for me the the more um sort of pivotal moment is just after the deal is done when all of the things that you know you used to hold sacred as a independent agency founder and all of the things that used to work um, and all the ways of doing things and all of the um, you know the sort of notions of hierarchy and, and process get chucked in the air in certain instances so it's very easy to imagine that I don't know an ad agency gets bought by a massive management consultancy and all of a sudden that ad agency has got access to you know the CMO and the CTO and the chief procurement officer with, you know, 40% of the FTSE 100. It's like a kid in a sweet shop moment. Absolutely. <laughs> but there was, there's trade-offs, right? There's going to be trade-offs to the way that that works and the pressures and the speed and the, the sort of hierarchy of strategic thinking. So I think it's a question generally about getting alignment. That's the key thing I would say. If you're going to make sure that, you know, having a different set of uh, sort of drivers and imperatives and decision makers, getting all the key people round the table, making sure there's real clarity about what does this group of people all need to do uh, in order to to make their transition as healthy and as profitable as possible. Um, and that's a piece of work, you know, that we often do. It's 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 an alignment piece um, about, you know, collaboratively getting everybody on the same page and setting up a shared set of priorities, ultimately. And managing um, expectations. But, uh, without that, everyone is just running in different directions. Yeah. And, and, not, and that stuff doesn't happen by osmosis. You know, you need to channel energy into, into a consistent set of, you know, a to-do list that everybody's brought into. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, I mean, one of the other issues that that, that we um, we have discussed is that when obviously an agency is you know it is 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 sort of on the on its growth sort of trajectory, you know, part of that process, and as I alluded to at the start, is is when you've got the you know the owners having to kind of change responsibility and they have to let go and relinquish some of the the sort of creative powers. I mean. How how do you help these people deal with handing off those responsibilities? Because it's a very precious thing to them, isn't it? It is. It is. And, and again, I suppose it speaks to the, the, the point we made earlier about kind of people wanting to change. You know, it's very difficult to get somebody to, to change almost the habit of a lifetime if they don't see the benefit of changing. 
it, it's you know that's tough that's really tough but I think to answer the question I think it's about creating an environment where it's easier for them to do that handing off of responsibilities you know if, if by definition they're the only person that can do XYZ task or the only person that's got that level of relationship with ABC client then obviously that's going to be tricky you know that's all part of that gearing up to uh, whatever kind of transition we're talking about where those those you know open strings start to be loosened you know before they're 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 cut um, and you know the next level of leadership can step up and you know uh, <laughs> it's a strange thing to say but I've seen this plenty of times where that next level of leadership is, is not actually chomping at the bit to step up they're not ready they don't necessarily even want it so there's a lot uh, it's again reminds me of one of the cliches that agencies talk about again and again um, about you know our people are our most important asset I think that is it's kind of biting the industry on its ass quite a lot right now because of the amount of change and, and sort of social and cultural change we're seeing, not just kind of in and around COVID, but certainly accelerated by it. The idea that sort of people strategy is anything other than a, a chief exec, kind of top of the chief exec's agenda is crazy. I think for most agencies, I say most agencies, that's probably not fair, for a lot of agencies in the past, thinking very strategically about what the particular people challenges are in that business in order to help them reach you know to deliver against the strategy that they've reached um it's not a conversation that gets had that often mostly because a lot of agencies don't have a particularly well thought out strategy it's just win clients make as much money as you can keep the clients sure so um so yeah in the context of a really clear people strategy that serves the purpose of an owner for example being able to hand off responsibilities then um you can start to make plans you can start to put short medium and ter longer term plans in place you know you can deliver things like coaching which i think i mentioned earlier to help people kind of get ready for that step up and also to help the leaders get ready for that transition as well so I think, as I say, it's about creating the environment where you kind of systematically look at the barriers to, you know, owners stepping away uh, and make sure everyone kind of feels comfortable stepping into the void. And yeah, I mean, the the HR side of it is, you know, it, I think it, it doesn't get spoken about, as you quite rightly said, you know, it doesn't get spoken about half as much as it should do, because, you know, the talent in the agency is is absolutely crucial and, you know, critical for, for not just now, but where the agency's going as well. But uh, um, a part of that talent, obviously, is uh, the, the, the sort of new business capability um, of an agency. Um, and uh, I mean, it just... So we're, we're all on the same page here. What we're talking about in terms of new business is, you know, mostly is sort of in an agency, new business tends to come in from referrals and, and new projects from existing clients. And But there's another side of it, which is the cold new business, you know, business from clients that that are the future direction of the agency as it, as it sort of moves forward. And we've had a lot of agencies, you know, tripping up in the last two years because they've got too much in one basket and not enough in the other. So we've got too much referral and nothing that's kind of uh, that's predicting the agency's you know sort of future trajectory so all they're doing basically is servicing you know the same bunch of, of clients that they've always been servicing i mean do you think is there, is there a kind of a ratio that, that that you you're happy to work with that you advise agencies you know that they try to achieve in terms of you know referrals versus cold so it's a really interesting question. So in in short, no, I don't think there is. And I don't think there should be, because I think this is probably a far more strategic question than, you know, sort of tactical new business, sort of day to day decision making question. Um, so my starting point on this is, you know, what's the business model? 
Um, and in, just in really crude terms, you know, are you having to, as an agency, have you got to eat five times a day or, or five times a year? Are you are you a hummingbird <laughs> or right. are you a crocodile kind of thing? So, um, you know, the, the route towards new business and therefore the, the sort of marketing effort that sits behind it to build that brand and to sort of fill, you know, the hopper of new leads, that needs to be more carefully thought about than it often is within agencies. So just being clear about what that kind of picture looks like, what the right kind of pipeline dynamics should be within that business, I think is, is critical. So it could be that for certain businesses, um, you know, you mentioned the sort of future facing aspect of this, just to follow that thought through, uh, you know, inbound is often sort of held up as being, oh, we want to have inbound, we want to be so famous and so differentiated that the, the phone never stops ringing. Right. And that makes perfect sense. But of course, if everybody is, you know, kind of coming to you because they've seen what you've done in the past, um, the risk there is that you end up not having enough space to kind of think differently, do different stuff, you know, consider more innovative projects you haven't done before. I'm not saying that's mutually exclusive. Of course, you could take those clients on that journey as well, but it becomes a sort of, you know, a, a sort of backward looking uh, metric in terms of where your reputation sits. Um, so, Inbound is, is not a sort of cure-all any more than getting all of your work by organic word of mouth or, you know, a formal referral program. So I suppose it's a sort of willy way of answering the questions. I don't think there is a, a perfect ratio. Right. Um, I certainly don't buy into any of this sort of, oh, it takes 7.2 contacts with a prospect before they'll turn into a lead. Um, <laughs> I think if you've got a if you've got a good business that is um, well differentiated and solves a particular problem for a discrete audience, then um, you should be well ahead of the stats, you know, whether it's around pitch conversion conversion or, you know, uh, you know, value of conversion or indeed the sort of response rates you might expect for any given channel. But I would say pick the right channels that work for your business. Don't try and do them all. Fine. Well, that's great advice. That's a very sound advice as well. And it's a, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, subject because, you know, the, there are these, there's two very distinct channels and two very distinct drivers. And, you know, part of what I talk to agency owners about as, as well is that, you know, the fact that they're, they can, you know, a lot of agency owners can do a lot of the the kind of the the normal referral based stuff, you know, where they've got existing clients because that's part of the servicing, you know. But the 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 cold new business is, you know, that's where your marketing team and your new business team work together to try and create inspiring pieces, you know, to 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 blaze trails in, in new directions. So uh, so yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very interesting talking point, and I'm sure it's not going to be the last time that we cover this. But uh, so but I mean, coming on to that at the start of the of, of all the pandemic we there was all everybody was talking about how important new business was and you know how much it was kind of um you know sort of what a priority it was for you know for for new business people and you know suddenly we found that the kind of the new business person was you know they had the spotlight on them all of a sudden and, and they were having to perform you know under a, a sort of uh, exceptional circumstances i mean do you think that the the new business function needs to be a board level position in an agency and and if so i mean what are the common problems and obstacles to to making this happen well, again, I mean, I, I've, I've I've loved this conversation for as long as I was in new business, and I was a new business director for fifteen years or, right. or more. But um, there's a nuance in here again. I, I think new business needs to be a board level responsibility. 
doesn't necessarily have to be a board level position. Right. So uh, let me just sort of unpack that a little bit. So when I was, um, you know, by the time I'd had five, six, seven years experience of doing new business, you know, and, and sort of rising through the ranks, I absolutely made it my business to only work in agencies where I had meaningful control over the kind of the conclusion of the new business cycle. For one, if you're just involved with lead gen, it's quite a downstream role. It's quite hard going. Um, it's quite thankless. It never ends. And you you may have a big target attached to you in terms of, you know, the business needs to bring in X million dollars or pounds or whatever. Um, and then, of course, you're not in the room when there's a pitch and, um, you know, you've got very little control as to whether all of these leads you've nurtured actually come to fruition. So I figured, well, look, there's no way, you know, maybe I'm a, a horrible control for but <laughs> there's no way I'm not going to be in the room and I'm not going to lead that pitch because I'm, you know, representing the voice of the client. I know, um, you know, where this conversation came from. I've developed it. I've got the rapport. You know, I, I think I have a strong role to play. And that worked very well for me with my skill set and my personality. Um, so um, if you have a board level sensibility that understands how to listen and how to act as a peer to clients uh, as opposed to subservient and understands the kind of commercial reality that you know that brands and marketers and you know procurement are operating in then um, that doesn't have to be a new business person um, so the you know the important thing is that the agency really understands how that, that kind of commercial sharp end needs to operate in order for them to get where they want to go um, and that's not a given you know for example i don't think creds decks are often particularly helpful uh, and it sounds silly but anyone that's ever learned consultative selling or been sort of taught any of those kind of core disciplines which are so prevalent outside of you know marketing and advertising land um you know, if you're not listening, you're probably not doing a very good job. And, and obviously, while you're presenting, you're you can't be listening. No, listening. absolutely, exactly. And I say that as someone that talks far too much, so it's um, it's not a given at all. But um, but yeah, I think if you are um, if you have that new business capability at the head of the agency, you know, in the boardroom, if there is meaningful ownership about you know the key metrics of new business and you know the wider growth of the business, and if they are if there's a, a grasp on those, if means the kind of business that has you know a you know a more junior marketing and new business sort of exec or management function that's fine but i would certainly not stymie the careers of those people and, and sort of keep them in that box because you know they're going to want to be able to um grow and develop their careers and also i think as an agency owner you're going to want to be able to you know bring their breadth of experience and their hopefully their kind of nous their nose for a deal further up you know, to be able to sort of impact the business on a wider scale. But um, one of the challenges here, I suppose, and so I know this is getting to be a very long and rambling answer, but there's a big difference, I think, in terms of that, the, the sort of breadth and depth of the new business remit. Hiring somebody on a big fat salary to solve all of your new business woes, um, it rarely works. And I think agencies often fall into that trap of thinking, okay, we're gonna spend a shed load of money on a senior new business person, and they're gonna kind of create a department of one, and they're gonna nail it. There's a big difference between someone coming in and getting the strategic building blocks in place, getting the, deciding which plates to spin and getting them spinning. Um, that shouldn't take very long. Um, and then what's that person going to do? Because if you think that they're going to spend their time sort of, you know, getting down in the weeds and doing the lead gen, they might say that they will, 
but that's a tough thing for that person to go ahead and do. So the, the kind of getting the plate spinning and keeping them spinning is, is a different role and balancing that uh, on, from a resource point of view, whether that's outsourcing elements of it or bringing in, you know, obviously <laughs> consultants to help. Sure. Um, it's worth just working through what the right approach to developing that resource is because there's a hundred different ways to do it. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, there, there are lots of different sort of solutions that uh, that are out there for for agencies, you know, and, uh, you know, you do have the option to hire in, you know, a big gun or you can you can outsource it on a, you know, a monthly or six monthly basis or something else like that. I mean, there are lots of different. That's the great thing about this industry is that I think there are lots of different options to explore um, depending on how you want your, you know, sort of how you want to get that balance. I, I agree. I agree. And I think even if you look in the space that, um, you know, that my business occupies, um, there's a lot of options for you if you are uh, an agency leader um, looking for an external perspective. You know, there are, um, you know, the M&A advisory businesses. Um, there are, you know, you're at the other end of the scale, you've got the kind of outsourced lead generation agencies, all of which you are very different. Mm-hmm. Um uh, you've got, you know, sort of former chief execs who've sold their agency and are now, you know, selling their very valuable experience back to the marketplace. Non-exec directoring. Like, you know, yeah, as a NED or as a, um, you know, as a, uh, you know, a sort of partner in that journey. Um, uh, you've got broader based businesses like mine, you know, offering a broader management consultancy service. So it's not spo- so specifically about the M&A journey, although it often is. It's not specifically about people's strategy, although it often is. Um, so, yeah, it's again, it's all about fit. And, th- and this is, uh, frankly, one reason why I think, you know, the one of the things that is not particularly helpful about how people are uh, sort of brought up to think about sales and new business is that it's about persuasion. I don't think it is. I think as soon as you're trying to, you know, convince the client that you're right for them, then you're probably not. And I'm not saying it's always going to be obvious and that you don't need to be compelling. But the reality is that if you've got some differentiation, it should be relatively straightforward to map that against what the client actually needs. Um, so your job really is to decide, help the client decide what they need and then answer honestly, do you know what, is this us or not? But I mean, we're sort of talking about, you know, how new business can I can can influence the you know the the, the direction of an agency, and so. Obviously, during the pandemic, you know, there was a different level of priority put on 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 new business. I mean, were there any kind of positives that you for agencies that you think came out of this whole kind of great reset? Oh, blimey. Uh, let me think. Well, I can give a couple. One of them I found incredibly infuriating and the other one I found <laughs> absolute, absolutely humbling. Um, so the most infuriating thing was watching um, at the start of lockdown or, you know, lockdown one. I forget what number of lockdown we're on now, but um, the the sort of agency community and particularly I'm sort of sad to say the new business community saying sort of variations of, OK, the world's changed you know we must no longer be selling we've got to start listening to our clients and, and hearing what they actually need from us <laughs> and uh, you know and a million and one sales professionals got a face palmed at this point and when what what have you been doing for the rest of your career i mean it's just <laughs> terrifying that that is something that would make it out you know out of your mouth into the world it's like you haven't um, been doing that well exactly i mean it's frightening right but again i think it's off honestly Many agencies, and I don't, you know, it is a generalization, but it is often true, and by no means always true, 
just don't have that investment in people and in training and that breadth of um, kind of commercial um, exposure to um, professional selling and professional negotiation and professional pricing. It is, to your point in one of the early questions, it's a creatively run organization, whether it's a creative agency or not. And those skills are just not uh, have historically not been particularly prized. Right. I think that's changing to a degree. But yeah, that's certainly an acceleration towards a better, more consultative, less kind of we're the answer, what was the question again type mentality, I think was the, the sort of slightly you know, gritted teeth um, positive that came out of the, the pandemic. The, the other one, which is probably a nicer point, is um, I think, particularly for a lot of independent founders, and again, I was very privileged to be kind of, you know, able to talk to lots of independent agency um, founders over that period, some of them clients, some of them not, some of them friends, some of them not, um, you know, some of them new. And um, I think a lot of them were quite relieved. There was a, you know, if the business had taken a hit and some of them, you know, they'd lost 10, 15 years worth of hard, you know, work, blood, sweat and tears um, almost overnight. Um, I was really humbled by the fact that a lot of them were quite relieved. They were quite relieved that they had been able to, it was almost a sort of no fault reset. They'd been able to get off the merry-go-round or the treadmill or, or, or whatever without it being them dropping the ball. Right. You know what, this sort of force majeure thing has happened. It's um, awful and you know, all of them I think to a man and woman took so much um, uh, care and attention to support their teams and be so mindful and compassionate towards the people that work for them. That was lovely to see. But I think what really struck me was, as I say, their relief in thinking, you know what, we've taken a hit. It's one of those things. It's done. Let's move on. But actually, having kind of, as a lot of agency founders do, you start an agency, you get successful, you bring in more people, you win bigger clients, you know, you've got a lot of mouths to feed, you're running and running and running just to stand still. And you wake up one morning, maybe with a nicer car, but you know, might not be as happy as you'd like to be. And I think for a lot of those kinds of agencies where they were knackered and working a lot of hours and personal relationships were suffering and all that stuff that I'm sure all the founders listening will find familiar, they were able to say, you know what, actually bigger maybe isn't better. Maybe we don't just want to grow for growth's sake. Maybe we do want to be a little bit more intentional about the kind of clients we win and the kind of relationships that we set up and the kind of expectations we set with our clients, particularly through new business. You know, what if we were to create, you know, to not build back the agency that we had, but let's build back the agency that we always wanted. And that I think is a really empowering consequence of the pandemic. That's a great answer. I love that. That's that's really good because uh, yeah, I mean it does. I think uh, you know we all felt it, didn't we? Was there there was a, a there was an element of you know we just woke up one morning and everything had changed and it wasn't our fault and so we could you know we had a chance just to sort of look at look at things and just you know and 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 redesign you know how we were going to move forward, which I think was very good. So that's a that's a great answer. Thank you for that. Now I mean, in talk, on the the sort of new business new business front. I've worked in agencies before where one big client comes in and uh, and they're kind of, you know, they're, they're all devoted to that. And, and that kind of, because they're working on a very big client, a prestige client, the 
that that kind of gives them an inflated sense of their own kind of self worth or their own um, their own sort of skill levels um, in ter- so that, that you know that they think well I can just go out and pick up another one of the same caliber um, you know if anything goes wrong I mean and that's not always the case I mean but for for these days I mean for an agency to win good new business consistently I mean what do you think are the skills that that an agency needs to master oh wow I love that um I I suppose we've kind of touched on some of this already um I think the kind of traditional mechanics of um winning new business in a pretty commoditized marketplace where agencies offer much the same service and um talk about those services in a pretty similar way and and kind of price in a very kind of comparative way um that has created a, a almost a sense of collected browbeatedness in most agencies i say again i'm terrible at that i don't mean most agencies i mean in many agencies and particularly in certain segments of the market do pull me up on stuff like that because i'm terrible but um <laughs> generalizations the, uh... they're all welcome <laughs> don't worry <laughs> <laughs> but um there's a sort of uh, you know there's a sort of i don't know like a shrugging of the shoulders for example oh, well you know procurement they want their pound of flesh you know that that sort of denigrating an entire buyer community um oh you know bloody bean counters they know the cost of everything value of nothing um that kind of stuff it belongs in the dark ages and i still hear it now and again from people that should know much better but there's again there's a sort of collective is it stockholm syndrome i forget but there's a sort of collective sense that the client knows best yes and that they must do as they're told and the sort of subservience is kind of just a kind of you know cost of doing business and they know that they don't want that to be the case but you know when push comes to shove and they're asked to do something or to turn around a pitch in 48 hours they kind of always do it because if we don't someone else will it's it's just not very healthy so um i think uh, you know building on some of the stuff we've talked about and not to sort of repeat ourselves if you are in a position where you have something that's meaningfully differentiated then you are able to create leverage around that so i think knowing how to do those two things are super important being differentiated is one thing and there's a ton of ways of doing it often far more broadly uh you know far more options on the table for any given business than they would typically realize um but that only is half the battle, being able to create that differentiation and then be able to create some leverage off the back of it. That's a question of changing how you behave uh, and changing your mindset and getting away from this sort of persuade the client with the answer at all costs. Um, so to answer your question about, you know, what does a, a modern agency, I think you said, need to do to, to win, agent, uh, win new business consistently, I would say translate that point of difference into how you do new business differently. So um, what is often missing is empathy. Um, I'm not going to sit here and talk about process because that differs from agency to agency, but in terms of kind of core skills or disciplines, the skill of empathy, um, I think a big part of that is a skill of listening. He says, as someone that's gabbled on and on and on on this podcast. But, <laughs> I mean, by that, um, do you do you mean the ability to the ability to listen to what the needs are in any given sector or any given specialty? Let me put it this way around. If you, we've all been in a shop where you walk in, you're just having a bit of a browse, and um, 
you know, someone, a shop assistant's right up in your face, you know, can I help you today, sir? And, um, you know, this is on, this is on sale today, sir. And, and just so you know, this is over here. And it's like, all right, all right. I've just come in for um, a look around. Thanks very much. No, don't worry. Yeah, I'll let you know if I need you. Yep. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You know, stop talking to me. And it's, we're not trying to be rude. It's just that they've misjudged the mood at that point. There's a lack of empathy because they're more focused on their agenda, which is selling me a thing than my agenda, which they have no idea about. Right. So if they can come up and ask a single question and acknowledge my presence and then back off um, and make it easy for me to go to them as and when, you know, I'm clearer on what I might want to try on in a different size, for example, then they've shown me some empathy. It's You see it the same when you're buying a used car or a house, you know, the, the experiences that are valuable are where people really help you to make the right decision for you, as opposed to, you know, sort of railroad you into doing something you might not want to do. So as I said, that really for me is at the heart of being consultative about that. And, and that is, I suppose, really focusing on the client's world before you start thinking about what you can flog them. And if you can, uh, you know, define really where the client wants to get to and also help them understand, like, realistically where they are at the present time, then you can start to plot a course between those two points. And at this point, you haven't even mentioned, you know, what you do or how cheap it might be or how competitive or creative or whatever. If you can plot that journey together, you're partnering on you know, you're co-creating that journey and that solution, then even on a self-serving basis, you've got a far richer idea of how your business might be the ones to help them along that journey or even just part of that journey because they've just told you exactly where, you know, what the, the challenges are for them and where they want to get to and, you know, what the stopping off points might be along the way. So it's not this sort of slightly kumbaya altruistic, you know, I'm only in the business of helping, but that's kind of what it boils down to. It's the same with coaching. You know, if you listen and, and listen to specifically where people want to get to and help them understand that and can provide some really practical steps to make that journey, um, then, you know, in coaching, people will be happy with an outcome. Uh, and in a sales context, they'll be happy to buy from you and to pay, you know, potentially a premium for that because you've done a method, much better job of selling and defining the right answer rather than just sort of taking a brief as read and, and not being able to demonstrate some expertise on top of it. Great stuff. That's really good. And I mean, talking about, I mean, you know, we've, we've mentioned it earlier on and, you know, you're just there as well about consultancy work. Um, I just wanted to get you, sound you out on this because, um, I mean, obviously, as we all know, I mean, last year, David Droga, the, the founder and chairman of Droga 5, became um, Accenture's interactive new, new CEO and, uh, and, and creative chairman. I mean, and basically... His his role there in the company was to draw on, you know, his his creative background and to to add that to the you know the the, the level of services that Accenture, I mean, can offer and basically to you know to hopefully to 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 really light light that that spark, but. You know what we've got there is a you've got a professional services company with years and years and years of 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 you know of of client consultation and really good safe handling, um, you know of of a business. They're acknowledging the importance of creativity in its in its role of to to help win business and grow companies. Um, 
And I mean, given that, I mean, what do you think that the future looks like in the next, you know, four or five years when, you know, inevitably you're going to get more and more tier two, tier three management consultancy firms coming through, pulling on the, the skills of, of agencies and, and sort of acquiring them or, 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 you know, bringing them into the fold, you know, in, in I mean, how is that going to affect the creative agency world? That's a really interesting topic because it's something that's maybe 10 years we've been talking about this. You know, all the consultants are coming. Everybody look out. You know, the consultants are coming. Um, I, I but it's happening now, isn't it? Well, it, it always was, certainly over the last 10 years. Now, uh, I personally, I think this gets overstated. Um uh, without talking, I mean, obviously there's been some headline purchases like Droga and, and Kamarama in the UK being both acquired by Accenture. Um, I'm not going to talk about any one of those in particular, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons. But I think generally speaking, you don't have to go very far in agency land to find people that used to run agencies that were acquired by management consultancies. And those agency people have then subsequently run a mile. Uh, and it, they're, they're two very different organizations, different ways of working. We talked about this earlier, different cultures and different sort of, you know, uh, focuses, yes. for example. Um, and, uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, an agency chief strategy officer might used to be being kind of positioned as the smartest person in the room. Sort of strategy begins there and kind of quite rightly in, in an agency context. In a management consultancy, you know, the, the smartest person in the room, I don't mean literally, but in terms of how that's positioned, to the client might be the you know that management consultancies I don't know automotive specialist who's right. got 25 years in that sector and they've flown him or her in from you know Frankfurt and that person is is the sort of the lead if you like you know in terms of setting the agenda so just one tiny example of how those worlds differ so I suspect the, the question isn't so much about you know the the kind of the consultants are coming along and eating the agency's lunch I think it seems to be for me anyway more a question of the relatively little progress agencies have made in terms of trying to eat the you know the lunch of the consultancies they haven't been particularly successful um in launching um you know their own any counter offensives counter offensive which sort of the reality the trend everybody's on the back of is is the rise of technology spend as part of marketing right and you can call that digital transformation or marketing optimization or whatever else you want to call it but the reality that the you know the cmo spend and the cto spend kind of aligning and where those decision making processes kind of come together that's definitely a thing so there is money in customer experience and there is you know uh, corporate gain in building better customer experience as any report from from Connor or Forrester will tell you. Agencies, I don't think, have done a particularly good job. There are plenty of exceptions to this, particularly those dedicated, um, you know, uh, sort of innovation consultancies and, and those have been, you know, probably more successfully hoovered up by the consultancies. But in terms of creative agencies um, sort of losing their lunch, I'm not aware of, you know, any of the big management consultancies, you know, consistently picking up top tier, you know, above the line advertising um, contracts. I'm, I'm not aware, again, I might well be wrong, but I'm not aware of them consistently kind of getting plaudits for, you know, their ads in the, in the halftime show at the Super Bowl. So, um, I, as I say, I think this is more an interesting question of to what degree can agencies kind of um, capture their slice of the increasing spend going towards technology-driven um, advertising and marketing. Um, 
I, actually, I think it's almost been a bit of a smokescreen. I think the bigger issue for agencies over that period has probably been more about the reduction in, um, you know, the agency of record relationship. There's a lot more, a lot more project work. Um, I'm not aware of any research on this, but I think anecdotally it's probably fairly robust. Um, that's probably more of a headwind um, than you know management consultants is eating their lunch per se. But to your question about um, sort of tier two and three management consultancies, that's really interesting. I think I. I Again, I'm just sort of off the top of my head. I, I suspect that um, the threat to agencies, um, if there is a threat, is perhaps less pronounced in those smaller management consultancies because they're probably less able to offer, oh, look, we do creative now. We're a one-stop shop. You know, we do your accounting. We do your, um, uh, you know, your auditing. Um, Everything from soup to nuts, yeah. From soup to nuts, exactly. It's maybe less able to, in, you know, introduce the creative part of marketing as a as a loss leader. So I, I'm not sure that that's as a compelling a purchase um, for those second and third tier consultancies. But um, again, within the context of their strong client relationships, why wouldn't they bring creative services in house? But I, I think there's plenty of space for both things. They're different different beasts, and um, there will always be some fuzziness around you know, the boundary. But uh, honestly, I, my personal view is that this has probably been a little bit overstated so far. Good stuff. Well, it's, it's reassuring to hear that from you. And, and I know you're, um, you've, you've sort of, um, you've, you're picking up a lot of this, um, <clears throat> a lot of this kind of uh, information as well. So it's, it's great to hear you uh, uh, relay that. So uh, appreciate that. Um, getting back to your um, sort of, the, you know, the, the actual co-definery business itself. Wh- when... <sighs> What does a client look like when it comes to you? I mean, when do you know, okay, I, I can really make a difference to this agency? I mean, what, 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 does, that, what does that look like? So I, I suppose I get asked this question a lot and people sort of imagine that there is a particular type of agency discipline or, you know, a particular size. Um, and it's really not that at all. I think, um, you know, in terms of exposure to different agency disciplines, as you would expect, it's super broad. Or, you know, creative and, and production, obviously media, PR, experiential design, um, digital products and service design, conversion rate optimization, um, you know, digital marketing, PPC, uh, music, technology. I mean, there's there's just loads of agency disciplines. And, and quite frankly, the boundaries between those disciplines are often quite blurry anyway, which is one reason why I think positioning, you know, is dead and, and why propositions, I think, are very different and much more important. But don't get me started on that. But wow. Okay. There's, think, another, there's another show right there. There's another show. Exactly. <laughs> There's a there's a there's a blog post written about that which I can send you if you're interested. But um, the what kind of to answer your question, when it feels like there might be a potential fit is when it's clear that they're you know open-minded, ready to change, um, sort of fundamentally strategic in recognizing what they know and what they don't know. Not because I know what they don't know, because I may well not. It might be that I know someone that does, but um, though those are the the leaders again within independence or within you know networked agencies um as if that's a clear distinction i don't think it is either but you know what i mean um it's the ones that are able to um uh i suppose clearly articulate why an external view might help them those that have given some thought to um you know what we have a view about where we want to get to maybe that's clear maybe it's not we've got you know what it boils down to is a sense of it's the people that recognize that what got us here won't get us there right and I think if you're if you're clear on that, then it might not be a good fit for co-definery, but um, you're a good fit for some kind of external, um, 
you know, input. And um, I, I generally think that, you know, the more open-minded we are and the, the, the less we think we know it all, generally speaking, the better progress we'll all make. So, um, so that, that's often what I'm listening out for. Um, yeah, that, that, that's the biggest thing for me. What got us here won't get us there. If I'm feeling that, then there might be some, uh, there might be a good opportunity to have a good conversation. Excellent. And, and of course, I've got to ask you, Rob, I mean, how do you win new business? <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, well, I, I don't always successfully do this, but I try as best I can to take my own medicine on this. So um, let me just try and remind myself of some of the things I've pontificated about <laughs> over the last hour or so. But um, uh, the point about uh, new business, you know, marketing channels, again, I am quite, you know, some work and some I don't use. Um, so I write a lot, as you mentioned, uh, yep. start very kindly having the column in Marketing Week, uh, thank you, um, is is super helpful. Um, it allows me to write to the marketplace, but from the client's perspective rather than from the agency perspective, because it's a, a you know a client focused mm-hmm. publication, obviously. So writing, uh, blogging, uh, you know, that's something that I feel you know works for the business, and I enjoy doing it. So Podcasting again. <laughs> podcasting I've never done guesting is good but doing my own um, tried it once and um, was crap at it so stopped <laughs> well I, so I think I see a future for you so yeah absolutely well, thank you very much but um, there's obviously a talent to it which I'm not sure I've got but um, but yeah referrals um, and strategic partnerships um, and when I say referrals again it's a word that gets chucked around like yeah. confetti being very very particular about what a referral means what it looks like how uh, it's structured where there is value for both parties in a referral etc etc but they're the three things really so it's a version of of thought leadership um which works for me in the shape of writing um uh being really diligent about having a referral strategy and also picking and choosing strategic partnerships that that work well um for the business but um uh so yeah that's kind of the marketing bit i i um i tell you what one of the things i most enjoy um you know about being in charge of of the business is that it allows me to follow my curiosity so i, I this sounds really kind of makes me sound like a dick but it's kind of true that um i uh i tend to place quite a low bar on a first conversation so I, frankly i'll talk to anyone i'm I, I love those conversations you know i've had plenty of conversations where there's like within 30 seconds there's no opportunity to do some work together but we're having a brilliant conversation about early 90s rave culture or something like that <laughs> and it's like this is brilliant yeah. it's you know what could be a better way of spending you know half an hour is chatting to some stranger about something that we're both really passionate about um but um, but yeah, I do tend to put a higher bar on the second conversation. Right. So um, and for that, it kind of empowers me to be quite strict with um, sort of a, uh, managing those conversations and agendering them. So it's you know we've got to be clear about what we're going to talk about and what the outcome of that conversation needs to be. And um, uh, I suppose the other thing I've really majored on is is, is listening. I don't um, I don't have a creds deck. Um, never will have a creds deck. Um, I think it kind of just breeds inflexibility in the way that you sell. There are certain instances in a business unlike mine where you're going to want to show work, but that's a different thing altogether. If you can't articulate what you do succinctly in a way that hopefully reacts to the way the clients describe their situation, then I'm not sure you're listening well. I don't think you're selling well. But um, yeah, if I can uncover a way of helping, whether that's something that 
makes money for code of Firenary or you know allows me to introduce that person to somebody else I found the best way to do that is is just by listening and you know obviously asking a few good questions but shutting up and, um, and you know and helping unpack what journey that client might want to go on um, so yeah that so the, only, the only other thing to point out maybe will be the conversion part of the business um, if that's the sort of you know the sort of marketing and, and mm-hmm. lead sort of nurturing part of it um, for me conversion is almost never competitive um, I uh, you know just for the reasons we talked about earlier the marketplace for advisors to agencies is is you know differentiated enough it's a well performing market which and it's a big market both, yeah yeah both sides you know clients are well served by the variety and you know the the, the vendors if you like Code Finery and, and plenty of other great businesses are um you know, well served by their difference between them. Um, so I think for that reason, that, that kind of competitive element is much less of a thing. Uh, and then lastly, pricing is again, something I will I do a lot of work around changing how agencies sell and how they price and, and bringing that leverage into play. So um, I don't have a rate card, um, you know, Code Finery doesn't sell time. Um, you know, it's pricing based on the value perception of the client is important and um, on occasions where it's relevant it makes it easy to add a you know some sort of performance related pay in there as well yeah which is you know always good fun to, to play with good stuff excellent well it brings me on to um i i have to discuss this because I, I mentioned it right at the very start but this is such an it's become such an important thing over the last sort of few months that we've been running the podcast but your involvement with who's your mama i mean I mean, this this speaks speaks to the the kind of wider sort of D and I debate that that we've been having um, sort of on on the show, but I mean, why? From your perspective, why do you think we're seeing yet another instance of kind of low representation? You know, in you know, sort of in certain sections of society, and in this case, in women. You know, why is that now? Why is that still? <laughs> Oh, blimey. I mean, there's another... I left that to the last, so... uh, I was going to say, thank you. There's a much longer podcast in there. But you're right. I mean, it should be talked about. I mean, with the obvious caveat that we've got, um, you know, two middle-aged white blokes having this conversation about representation, um, I I don't think it does uh, any harm for us to have a view on that um, as long as we go into that conversation with um, a very healthy... um, open-mindedness about being corrected about you know our experience not being representative so um that's all part of the journey i think we should all be going on whether it's you know in accordance with race or sexism or any other kind of you know discriminatory habits that societies have you know uh uh, kind of upheld for too long but to answer your question in terms of it's a really interesting one so from my experience having mentored a lot of um uh, a lot of women um through she says uh the thing that comes up again and again and again is imposter syndrome and um as those women get a bit older um there is just the and i don't think necessarily this is quite so gendered um there's a lot of talk about almost presenteeism or just the 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 pressure of work um so for me I, i think the and this isn't just specific to agencies i'm sure but it is largely my frame of reference again i stand to be corrected about you know maybe a lack of intersectionality here but the the point being that i think so much of the workplace is designed 
in a masculine framing. So I don't just mean about men and women, I mean about masculine versus feminine. So the language of agencies particular and generally the language of business and the sort of modus operandi of business is very much in the masculine. It's about, you know, there's a sort of survival of the fittest, getting things done, not necessarily aggressively, out, outwardly aggressive, but a, a kind of achievement-based culture. Some of which I'm sure is necessary to, you know, a, a commercial organisation, particularly in a, you know, a, a very challenging sector. But I suspect, and and this is uh, probably again, uh, uh, maybe a generalisation, but probably more true in the creative industries. We would all be well served, and particularly those those women um, and. Um, uh, you know any non-binary people that fit into this bracket uh, that are feeling like the industry isn't for them would be well served if the industry as a whole was able to recognize some of those more feminine traits um, which of course a lot of men have as well I'm not talking about men versus women but just being able to help us uh, you know less about keeping our foot to the floor the whole time and creating a little bit more space for intuition and being able to nurture creativity and just to be able to sit and breathe and notice and feel and nurture um, those kinds of skills are um, certainly very apparent in some of the best bosses I've ever had many of whom were women um, and I'm not sure our industry does a good job at creating the space for those often typically more feminine traits to thrive. Right. I think if they did, then um, we might start to make a dent in one part of the issue around um, greater representation, um, in this case, for women. And because it's, it, I mean, it's like everything else, you know, all the other weak spots of the industry or blind spots is that, you know, this isn't about recruitment. This isn't just ticking a box and saying, okay, we do that now. You know, this is about creating the environment for that to thrive. You know, it's the retention rather than the recruitment side of things. And, you know, I mean, we, we've been having this conversation, you know, for, with, with a number of kind of agency heads now. And I think, you know, this is this is something that, that we need to do more of because clearly, it's still not sorted out is it i agree i agree and, and again we talked about some of the sort of silver linings perhaps out of the pandemic um it has probably accelerated the conversation about um better representation you know neurodiversity um uh obviously there were sort of pre-existing momentum around things like black black lives matter um I like to think that, you know, particularly with the, the sort of changing nature of working, it has accelerated the um, appetite for management within agencies to recognise that the values of the younger generation coming into the industry are not the same as the values that they are so used to as, you know, as people in their late 30s, 40s, 50s, etc. Right. So um, it's one of the reasons why I think a lot of the, the, the sort of challenges around the so-called talent crisis are overstated. There's a lot of hype in there. If you look at the data, a lot of the, the sort of reports around the great resignation are not particularly well-grounded, um, particularly in professional services, you know, like agencies. So, um, you know, getting, <laughs> getting beyond that hype and having a more informed conversation about... Um, you know, making a better workplace, particularly for the younger people coming into it, 
I suspect that conversation has been accelerated. Here's a case in point. I mean, if, if wage inflation has got so silly, and it has, that's probably, again, I don't have the stats to hand, but anecdotally, that's probably fair to say. Um, there's a sort of assumption that it's the only way you can compete for talent is by offering them more money. But actually having a more nuanced understanding of the values and motivations of, of people that are different to ourselves um, would give us a much richer you know, toolkit, if you like, to help, you know, help a person considering a role with our agency. Um, you know, we might not be able to pay as much, but we can offer this, this and this. You know, we think that that might be useful for you. Do you agree? No. Okay. Cheers. Off you go. And yes, actually, that's William. I won't go with the highest offer. Now, it's not a kind of panacea. Obviously, money talks to a lot of people, but it's not the primary goal to a lot of people. And um, you know, that a deeper understanding of different motivations in different people, I think, is hopefully. Uh, an accelerant to a conversation about better representation. Wow. And on that note, I mean, we, I don't think we could get any more philosophical than that. I think that's fantastic. Thank you very much, Rob. <laughs> that's excellent stuff. And uh, I think it's, um, yeah, and, and I mean, we will be uh, we will be touching on this again, you know, sort of uh, in uh, in future podcasts as well. So, uh, so yeah, but I, I appreciate your contribution to that. Um, now, we um, can't let you go without um, taking part in the uh, the fun three games that we, we normally play at the back end of the show show um which is um the first one is um as, as your your homework was to uh, a show and tell object so something that that uh, has a significance to you and uh and if you could uh, show it or, or or explain it to our uh, to our audience this reminds me of the the muppet show cast album where there's a bunch which i listened to obsessively in the late 70s but um <laughs> there's a joke in there about it being a record so there's kind of visual jokes not working so for anyone that's, for anyone that's listening to so this is a podcast this next bit's going to be a it's going to be a bit shit but come on <laughs> okay so i'm i'm holding up my um my uh, my new um uh, earbuds oh which, um, okay there we go now um you're not gonna be able to hear this or see it but i'm pressing the button now and there is a wonderful <gasps> soft opening i know right oh right. man i the love it you see i love drawers that your, do that too take your judgment on this moment <laughs> from Keith's size. <laughs> anyway, what's great about these is that I've spent a few quid on them and um, they've got little flashy blue lights on them, which is like the sexiest thing ever. Fantastic. But in all seriousness, what's amazing about them, what is great about them is that it's... Um, uh, I've been doing more walking and talking uh, in the last month or two than I have done um, since the whole kind of working from home thing became a thing. And the the joy that I get from being out I'm lucky I live in a town where the countryside's on my doorstep, so I'm sort of close to London, but also just outside. So to be able to go and do work calls, um, you know, while I'm out, you know, in, in the middle of a field and can't see anybody else and just enjoying, yeah. you know, a bit of sunshine and a bit of fresh air, um, they just don't pick up the wind noise like almost every other <laughs> every other set of headphones I've ever had. So that's literally transformed my life. What Even make my, are they? You know, pardon? What make are they? Um, so if this... Uh, podcasters listened to by the good people at Bose. I um, there I we go. Very happy to advocate you further on other podcasts. And, and, and I, uh, I have to say, I've got a, I'm, <laughs> I'm surrounded by Bose systems as well. I, I think it's absolutely top quality. So, but that that just that little case. See, it's it's the details that matter, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, I, I've seen a bunch of people over the years unpack their Apple products and get so excited that they've kept the cardboard. I'm not quite that bad, but as a carry case with little blue lights and a soft close, soft open thing on it, it's kind of. It's 
it's got my number. Yeah, I lo- as I say, I, lo- I love kitchen drawers that do that as well. <laughs> well now, now we're talking kitchen. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, now, um, music. You've got a... Yes. A, I, I wouldn't describe it as a banger of a track because this is one of these. Um, it's a stealthy track, it's a, but it's it's a it's a beautiful piece. Which is it, and why? Right. So the the track that um, I thought I would bring along um, is uh, there's a British band from Bury just outside Manchester called Elbow, and they have a song called Station Approach. And um, you're right. It's not. It doesn't start as a banger, but it kind of ends up as one. And um, I think for my generation that were sort of brought up on the Stone Roses, you know, and anyone that knows the Stone Roses will know the song I Am The Resurrection. It sort of set the the kind of musical barometer for a lot of people my kind of age where, you know, you might have a song that starts off relatively steadily and then builds and builds and builds into this lovely crescendo. And um, that's how we spend our youth listening to tracks like that. And and this is, it's not quite so old. I think this track's maybe from... I don't know, like 2000 and early 2000s maybe, but um, it's one of the few tracks I can remember that I know exactly where I was the first time I heard it. I was class them for anyone that gives a monkey. <laughs> but uh, the point being, it's a lovely song about going home. You were and, in Clapham. Um, I was in Clapham at the time, but um, yeah, the, uh, the, the song itself is about going home. Right. And um, home's quite, has been an interesting concept for me for one reason or another, um, which again is another caveat that uh, will kind of... Uh, <laughs> Uh, another podcast we don't have time to go down but um <laughs> it's a it's a lovely thought about going home where you know you really recognize the buildings and the people and the mood and i think it's it's a bit it's a bit like one of those tracks a sort of chicken soup for the soul you know if lovely. you're feeling a bit out of sorts put on a great song that builds and builds and builds and makes you feel you know warm and cozy and remembering the people that matter to you it's a really lovely song oh nice one. Oh, that's great lovely and a book what book are you? Yeah, what, book, so, what book did you um, bring? Yeah, one of my um, resolutions that I'm currently failing with is um, is yet again trying to find more time to read and, and reminding myself how much I enjoy it. So, a book I read recently, um, he says, implying there were loads and there wasn't, um, is a book called Conflicted uh, by a guy called Ian Leslie. And um, Ian, you can find on Twitter. I don't know him personally, but he's a lovely writer. He did a brilliant piece that went round the socials a bit recently about um, 64 reasons to love Paul McCartney. And I wasn't. I mean, I like the Beatles. So I'm not a massive Macca fan, but it was so beautifully written uh, and it was bloody long and I still got to the end of it, which is unusual. But anyway, this guy, Ian Leslie, he wrote this book called Conflicted, which is all about, um, I suppose, societally, why we're all arguing so much and how um, arguing in a more intelligent, more constructive way could really improve a lot of lives. So um, it's just really well written and accessible and um, Terribly I know it sounds quite dry. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's not. It, it's easy to read, and it really puts into perspective um, the kind of polari- polarization of so much of society. You know, partic- particularly politically, we think yeah. about the left and the right. You know, it's much much worse in the states, obviously. Um, you know, certain areas of on the right or the left will consider, you know, being politically opposed to them as some sort of, you know, illness. It's madness. And um, so just unpacking what happens to us when we disagree um, with one another, how that shows up in different contexts, you know, in personal relationships or in business or in politics, what we can do about it, what we're communicating to one another when we disagree or how we disagree. It's a fantastic 
um, interesting book for anyone that wants to have better conversations. And I suppose just to neatly round this off, it's also a great book for anyone that wants to have um, more productive communication with other people. And a lot of that, naturally enough, is about listening. There you go. There you go. Perfect. Nicely, nicely brought around there, Rob. Fantastic. Um, Okay, so thank you very much for that. Appreciate that. Um, now, if there's any um, sort of agency um, heads out there that uh, that fancy getting in touch, what's the easiest way to grab hold of you? Uh, so the easiest way to get hold of me is via the website, which is codefinery.com, which is C-O-D-E-F-I-N-E-R-Y, codefinery.com. Um, and uh, uh, so on social, I am R-O-B-O-N-N. So it's R-O and then my surname. Fantastic. That's great. Thank you very much, Rob. Well, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been lovely to, to, to speak to you. And uh, I think you've been, uh, it's been, you've dished out some great advice. And uh, I'm sure there's, um, there's, there's going to be uh, a, a time when we can, uh, we can do this again soon. But uh, I think, um, you know, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been very interesting to kind of lift the lid on all this, you know, having seen it from the US and now seeing it from, from the UK perspective, you know, on that, those whole kind of growth challenges. So um, I do appreciate you putting the time aside and, uh, and talking to us and uh, hope this isn't the last time that we do it. So uh, thank you very much, Rob. I'll speak to you soon. Likewise, Keith, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, just fascinating questions, all good thorny stuff. So, um, apologise for talking at you. <laughs> not, <laughs> at all, more than listening, not at all. You're more than absolute. welcome, my friend. I'll speak to you soon, anyway. <laughs> it's been a joy. Take all care. Right. Take care, Keith. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. you have it you're now ready to put a plan together to grow your agency and maintain the mojo that made you my warmest thanks to robin a great wise and informative man all his contact details are in the show notes at www.thefuelpodcast.com forward slash whatever this show is called i don't know but you'll find the show on the homepage. anyway my thanks to Team Fuel, that's Donna Smith, Matt Smith, Jeremy Davis, Matt Bullard and Peter Banks for all the production. To Robin Bond for putting up with my questions for the hour and mostly to you, we're hitting the big time. We've got very exciting announcement coming up, probably in the next episode, but people have been talking about us and we've been called into the Podmasters study and given some excellent news. So thank you everyone who listens to us or has just started listening to the show. We literally couldn't have done it without you. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and then you'll know when we've got a new show out. For now, this is me, a Smith called Keith, full of gratitude for your support and looking forward to my next interview on Fuel, the podcast for the new business curious. And really, shouldn't that include you? You.